0: And thanks for listening. How did the United States become the world's largest oil producer? This is Climate One, changing the conversation about energy, economy, and the environment. Climate One conversations with oil companies and environmentalists, Republicans and Democrats, are recorded before a live audience and hosted by Greg Dalton. I'm Devin Strolovich. Production of oil and gas in the United States has surged to levels unthinkable a decade ago due to the revolution in hydraulic fracturing.
3: One of the humbling things for me in working on this book was realizing that anybody who has ever attempted to predict anything about the future of energy has usually been dead wrong.
0: Bethany McLean is a writer for Vanity Fair and author of the new book, Saudi America, the truth about fracking and how it's changing the world. She's also author of The Smartest Guys in the Room, a chronicle of the Enron debacle that was made into a documentary film. In Saudi America, McLean asks what's next for fossil fuels in America and beyond.
2: The most fundamental issue here is that this is oil and gas that we can't afford to burn.
0: Cassie Siegel is senior counsel at the Center for Biological Diversity, where she advances campaigns for the reduction of greenhouse gas pollution and the protection of plants and animals threatened by global warming. Siegel says that new development of fossil fuels is simply incompatible with the math of the Paris Climate Accord which aims to limit warming to 1.5 degrees.
4: Going out to the world and saying, we need to immediately stop producing fossil fuels, just will get us nowhere. I think everybody will simply ignore us.
0: Severin Borenstein is professor at the Haas School of Business at UC Berkeley and former director of the University of California Energy Institute. Though he agrees with Siegel on the urgent need to stop burning fossil fuels, he sees more promise in technologies that make clean energy cheaper and more accessible. Let's listen as Greg Dalton welcomes his three guests for a conversation about the future of the fossil fuel economy.
1: Bethy McLean, tell us the colorful story of Aubrey McClendon. There's a quote in your book that is sort of illustrative of him where he's speaking to some oil and gas men and he says, quote, last night I got back to my room at 2 a.m. I went through some emails and there's no telling what I did. So if I bought you, I probably overpaid. Congratulations.
3: That's a very Aubrey McClendon quote from what people told me. He was frequently emailing um, people in the middle of the night from hotel rooms and doing deals. I was fascinated with him dating back to probably 2010. Um, As a business journalist, I'm always interested in these larger-than-life characters, the ones who prove that old adage that truth is stranger than fiction. Um, And I think Aubrey McClendon is one of those characters. You couldn't make a guy like this up if you tried. And uh, um, a source of mine, oddly enough an Australian, would say to me that Aubrey McClendon was the most important man in America. And he was obviously employing some degree of hyperbole. But what he meant by that was that if McClendon was right, and America could, could produce these vast quantities of natural gas, then for better or worse, that would change the types of industry that were located here, it would change geopolitics, and it was a really, really big deal for the, for the future of the country. And if he were wrong, well, then he was wrong. And this was also a guy who would have debates with his partner at the hedge fund he operated, and his partner would say, the oil and gas are real. And my friend John would say, yeah, but the economics don't work. And so I was fascinated by this industry because of this observation from the beginning that the economics were were very suspect, were were shaky ground. But anyway, um, so so I was fascinated by Aubrey um, and by just the flamboyance of his character. Um, And he created this company called Chesapeake that grew to be the country's second largest producer of of natural gas and was just um, a risk taker like the world has rarely seen. And the thing I actually liked and admired about McClendon is that not only did he risk a lot of other people's money, but he, he also risked his own. And that's rare. So he, when he died, he was bankrupt, um, essentially. And the amount of capital he was able to raise was just astonishing. He was one of the world's great salesmen, um, analyst at an investment firm who was very skeptical of McClendon and pretty skeptical of the economics of the fracking revolution in, in entirety, um, said to me that he, still, he never let Aubrey in the door for a meeting because he knew that if he did, his firm would end up buying a ton of stock. Um, and it and it wouldn't end well. But a lot of people did buy. Um, It's actually pretty stunning. I I calculated these numbers from 2000 to 2012, when McClendon got booted out of his company. Chesapeake raised $15 billion in equity, about $16 billion in debt, and over $30 billion by doing uh, lots of other deals, including some very Enron-esque deals, in which they essentially sold gas forward and got the proceeds um, up front as a loan of sorts secured by the gas. And you think about that just huge amount of capital And for me, that became emblematic of this industry, because while there is some technology in fracking, and there are obviously chemicals at work in fracking, the key ingredient without which this whole thing wouldn't have happened is capital, just mountains upon mountains of of capital. And so while McClendon wasn't the father of sort of the technology that enabled hydraulic fracturing, he was the the pioneer of capital raising. And um, I was struck by what another source of mine said to me about Aubrey McClendon. He said he, he just did what the rest of the industry did on steroids. And so I thought as a metaphor for this industry, it couldn't be a better figure. And when he dies in this somewhat mysterious car crash in the spring of 2016, this looked like the end for the U.S. fracking industry. And so it seemed like the punctuation mark um, that was going to underscore the end. And it, it wasn't. Um, but his death still marked a moment.
1: And his rise and fall tracks the rise and fall of the industry. You know, natural gas was priced at about 7 or $8. A lot of people thought it was going to stay there. A lot of smart people smart money on Wall Street, thought it was going to stay there. So tell us from that peak to the, you know, it crashes and around $2 in 2012 and and what that what that did.
3: Yeah. So McClendon seemed to forget his own own adage, which is that um, high prices cure high prices. And so he continued to he and others just continued to produce this mammoth glut of natural gas and it eventually um, cratered the price and made it even more difficult for these companies to make any money. Um, And then not only had. Had, Aubrey had, had basically borrowed against all of the stock he owned in order to buy yet more stock. And so when Chesapeake's stock plummeted, um, Aubrey got called with margin loans and essentially got wiped out and never really recovered from that bankruptcy in the fall of 2008. Um, and then he ended up getting booted out of his company in 2012 um, when all sorts of other shenanigans that he was engaged in came to light through a great series of pieces and Reuters.
1: And then 2016, he dies in a fiery crash. Some mystery around that crash. What do you think really happened in that crash?
3: Well, we'll never know. But he was speeding in his car, texting, not wearing a seatbelt, which I guess was par for the course for him. Um, And he crashed into a concrete embankment going 80 miles an hour, seemingly making no effort to avoid the collision. And he'd been indicted the day before by the Justice Department um, for antitrust violations. And it would have taken him down. This would have been the end. His investors would have fled and he would made this amazing comeback after getting kicked out of Chesapeake he did round two and managed to raise another 15 billion dollars, people who were still willing to bet on him, that's how good this guy was, Um, but this, he probably would not have been able to have a round three, although then again you never know Um, but the indictment would have marked the end and the timing of course is incredibly suspicious so people have always speculated that it must have been a suicide but um, the Oklahoma City Police decided that they would not rule it a suicide and the police department captain and said, we'll never know 100% um, what happened. But the funny thing about McClendon, he was in some ways also in more ways admirable because he was never down, and people who saw him in the month before his death said he seemed like Aubrey always did. I mean, his whole empire was crumbling and falling to pieces, and he was just as optimistic um, and carefree as he had always seemed to be.
1: Severin Borenstein, you know, tell us you've been an energy economist for a long time. The idea of suddenly the U.S. being the number one producer, you know, this what's happened here. I think it happens so slowly. Some people who are outside of energy on a regular basis don't fully appreciate how the energy world has been turned upside down by what's happened in fracking.
4: Yeah, if you go back 10, 12 years, uh, we were looking at a lot of discussion of peak oil and very high gas prices and forecasts from the government for rising gas prices over time. So they were at six or seven dollars per million cubic feet or per thousand cubic feet and expected to continue to rise. And now they're around three dollars. Uh, and that is fracking. Now, um, as Bethany mentioned, uh, McClendon and a lot of the gas industry didn't seem to appreciate that if you suddenly have a technology that massively increases gas production, because gas is much harder to trade across oceans than oil is. Most of that's going to stay in the in North America and it's going to flood the market. And so the price has been cut in half. And unlike oil prices, which have started back up again, uh, gas prices haven't. They're that's we're talking natural gas here. Yeah. Natural gas prices are have are stuck very, very low. The oil side of this, which took which came in later, they first figured out how to frack natural gas, um, but they pretty quickly figured out the same technology could be used to release oil. It's harder, but it can be done. And it turns out that even there, the extra five million barrels a day in a 100 million barrel market that the United States is now producing versus what you would have forecast ten years ago. Is Enough to push prices down. We saw them pushed way down for a while and we were buying very cheap gas
1: gasoline
4: here Gasoline Gasoline. (laughs) Um, and But it turned out that those prices really weren't sustainable when the prices got down to $30 a barrel uh, the producers in the North Dakota and West Texas who were using this new technology couldn't stay in business and they started folding and we saw a great decline in new exploration. And now the prices have started back up again. So now oil's around 70 or 80 dollars a barrel. And we're paying upper threes in California for gasoline. And in the rest of the country, upper twos. Cassie
1: Siegel, your perspective on this is that, you know, the the carbon budget math is simple and dire that there's already enough hydrocarbons on the books of publicly traded and state owned companies to fry the planet. So tell us how you think it needs to stay in the ground.
2: Yeah, that's right. So the most fundamental issue here is that this is oil and gas that we can't afford to burn. And um, we now know what the carbon budget is for staying below 1.5 degrees. Um, We know that the damages above 1.5 are catastrophic. Just look what we're living through today with one degree. And there is enough oil, gas, and coal in already open producing fields globally to blow way, way past 1.5 degrees. That carbon budget is overspent. And what that means is that there's no room for new fossil fuel development anywhere. And in fact, we have to close down the majority of operating fields before they're fully depleted if we're gonna stay below 1.5 degrees.
1: Bethany McLean, let's get your take, because you don't talk a lot about climate in Saudi America. I'd like to know you know, if these fracking companies, et cetera, even have climate on their radar, or do they tell themselves a story that they're the clean guys because they're better than coal?
3: So the book is explicitly not an environmental book, and that's partly because it's a mini book. Um, A friend, and it was a friend, even told me it was a beach read, which I thought was awesome. Um, Nobody's ever said anything I've written as a beach read, so that was exciting. (laughs) Um, But um, you can only tackle so much in a mini book, and I actually focused explicitly on the financial issues because I thought this shaky financial foundation of the industry wasn't as well understood as perhaps the environmental issues were. Um, But I ended up, in a weird way, sort of coming around to an environmental environmental view, and I'd say that that's twofold. One is because I spoke to a lot of investors, actually, uh, who, who are actively trying to figure out when the dawn of the age of renewables will be. And the prism through which investors see it is we don't have to know when we're going to stop using oil and gas. We just have to be able to see when that time is going to be. And that's when investment in these projects is going to dry up. And there's some big private equity firms that have already stopped putting any money into oil and gas because they think that time is sooner rather than later. So I think from a market-driven perspective, it actually, and there's such huge debate about when it will be that, that no one knows the answer but at least there are some people who are thinking that it's, that it's sooner. And that was surprising to me because these are pe- aren't people who are saying they care about the environment. They're people who are investing clearly, just purely from a financial angle. And then I actually ended the book by, people had told me that Charlie Munger, do you guys know who Charlie Munger is? Mm-hmm. He's Warren Buffett's um, cranky old sidekick, um, still brilliant in his 90s. I can only hope for as much. Um, he actually has a conservationist point of view. And his argument is that chemical feedstocks are still the only way to feed a nation there would account for our great increase in yield per acre. And that what are we doing pulling all this stuff out of the ground when we might need it to feed our population? And so he came at it from a slightly different perspective, but one that was very compelling to me.
1: So better to use oil for fertilizer than to to burn it. Save it until
3: until there's a substitute, because right now there is no substitute.
0: You're listening to a Climate One conversation about the future of fossil fuels. Coming up, Greg Dalton asks whether reducing supply or demand is the key to leaving the brown economy behind.
2: For decades, we've heard, let's do more R&D and let's work on demand and only working at the tailpipes and the smokestacks, that is the loophole. To avoid actually getting there, we need to leave fossil fuels in the ground.
0: That's up next, when Climate One continues. We continue now with Climate One, Greg Dalton is talking about fossil fuels in America and beyond, with Severin Borenstein, professor at the Haas School of Business at UC Berkeley, Bethany McLean, author of the new book, Saudi America, the truth about fracking and how it's changing the world, and Cassie Siegel, senior counsel at the Center for Biological Diversity. Here's your host, Greg Dalton.
1: Bethany McLean, tell us how in a way, Saudi Arabia tried to put Texas frackers out of business, but really squeeze them and squeeze them out of the market.
3: So it's a little bit of mythology and a little bit of truth. People who know Saudi Arabia and recent events have shown this only too painfully and horribly have cautioned me into it about thinking you can ever understand anything the kingdom is doing from the outside. But there was this widespread belief that as oil prices started to fall in 2014, Saudi Arabia made what came to be seen as this pivotal decision not to cut production um, because cutting production would have increased prices and thereby um, helped save American frackers. And so people saw it as this concerted effort to put American frackers out of business and remove them as a competitive threat from from the oil market. And look, it almost worked. I mean, I think 150 companies um, went went bankrupt during that period. A million barrels of production came offline and it kind of underscored the fragility of this industry. Um, And to your point that it emerged stronger, it did in some ways, although I think some of the reason that it survived is because Wall Street didn't go away. The capital is still there. And that has more to do with dynamics in the capital markets than it does to do with anything going on in fracking per se. Um, Because the Federal Reserve cut interest rates so much in the wake of the financial crisis in order to prop up the economy, that's resulted in capital flows in two ways. One is that interest rates are really cheap, so it's easy, or have been, so that it's been really easy for heavily debt-laden companies to to raise money. And the second is that a lot of pension funds who can't returns in places that they used to have been increasingly putting money into riskier areas like private equity firms um, and credit-based hedge funds, which in turn put money into fracking companies. And so the most important aspect, I think, in the comeback of the industry wasn't the industry's innovation, although that, that was there, but it was the fact that Wall Street was still there and the capital didn't go away.
1: Cassie, let's ask you to talk about tactics that energy companies are doing to protect their profit streams. Uh, You've battled them in court. Uh, They're going after children. Tell us what they're doing to protect the profit streams.
2: Thank you for asking that. Um, The uh, world's biggest fossil fuel producers are also some of the worst actors. in many, many ways. And I don't think you can fully understand the context here without talking about the Koch brothers and the billions and billions of dollars that they have poured into politics and academia and disinformation campaigns over decades. And one of the best examples of that is the disinformation campaigns carried out by Exxon um, and other oil companies to lie to people um, about the harm that their product Causes modeled on the disinformation campaign carried out by the tobacco industry, very insidious, very successful. They have been um, uh, peddling those lies and they have been blocking climate progress for decades. Here in California, where we actually heavily subsidize the oil industry, we're the only state other than Pennsylvania that doesn't even have an extraction tax, they have the the red carpet rolled out for them and they take some of their profits and they use it to block California climate policy and they attack anybody who tries to stand up to them from attacking the Attorney General of New York, who's investigating them for fraud, to going after the local governments that have sued them for the damage they caused, um, from sea level rise and and other harms, to uh, environmental justice youth groups in Los Angeles, that together with my organization, these teenagers sued the city of L.A., for legal violations in their oil permitting, for rubber stamping, not doing any uh, environmental review required before handing out permits to the oil industry, for racial discrimination. Because in the city of Los Angeles, there's all kinds of uh, uh, measures to reduce harms in wealthy white neighborhoods. There are no measures in low-income communities of color. And the city of Los Angeles, to their credit, when we brought this lawsuit, they changed their behavior somewhat. We were able to settle it. And the California Independent Petroleum Association, which uh, has uh, oil companies like Chevron and Exxon as their members, filed a countersuit against us and those teenagers, alleging that the teenagers had violated their due process rights by filing a lawsuit and settling it. And um, this is called strategic litigation against public participation, or a slap suit. It's an insidious problem. We actually have a special statute against it in California because anybody with lots of money can come in and sue someone without a lot of money to try to harass them, int- intimidate them, and shut them up. So that's just a very brief summary of of um, some some of the bad actions by these corporations.
1: Severin Borenstein, the the carbon math, you know, these companies are going to defend their profits as that as their shareholders want them to do. What's the solution if it's not going to be regulation? You know, is it innovation Is a technology? You know, the carbon budget is being consumed every day. We're here we're here talking kind of like business as usual while there's this. This ticking climate that we acknowledge and we talk about it and then we kind of push it to the side and go back to business as usual all of us sort of do that What's well
4: I, I mean we took a giant step backwards in November 2016 because we lost the federal government as a partner in this and now California is one of the largest economies in the world that possibly the largest that's making a real effort to uh, re- to reduce climate change uh, obviously we have to have a price on emitting greenhouse gases California has one. It's way too low. uh, And I think we need to make changes in that. But we, I think, need to realize that pricing carbon in California isn't going to be sufficient. The real contribution California can make is in innovation. That's what we've been doing in every other industry. We're a knowledge based economy. We need to figure out how to make electric cars that are actually cost effective. We need to figure out how to electrify a lot of things we do. Uh, we need to figure out how to integrate renewables into a grid and still have a stable grid where people can get cost-effective uh, and reliable electricity. California is doing a lot of that. You know, we're go- headed towards 50% renewables in the next few years. Electricity. We'll be yeah. in, in electricity, will be over 60%. The goal now is 60% by 2030, which everyone thinks we'll make. Uh, and sure, it'll clean up the environment a little bit. But the real contribution is we will demonstrate that you can run a grid at 60% renewables and Five years ago a lot of people said you couldn't and California has made tremendous progress And I think that's a much bigger contribution Towards pushing pushing the technology forward that can come in under the fossil fuels and therefore be adopted in poor countries so when you ask India to reduce their greenhouse gases when coal fired power is incredibly cheap in India. uh, The way I think we're going to get there is partially they're going to start paying more attention to the local pollution, which is a huge problem in India and cuts many years off of people's lives. But partially they're just going to say, boy, we can do solar and wind power in a cost effective way. And if we can do that, then I think these poor countries are more likely to do it. Otherwise, they're going to grow the way we grew. By burning a lot of fossil fuels and emitting a lot of greenhouse gases.
1: Which, case we're all toast. Yeah. If you're just joining us, we're talking about Saudi America, Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. Our guests include Bethany McLean, author of the new book, Saudi America, The Truth About Fracking and How It's Changing the World. Cassie Siegel, Senior Counsel at the Center for Biological Diversity. And Severin Borenstein, Professor at the University of California Business School, the Haas School of Business. Cassie Siegel.
2: Ooh. Severin, you bring up poor countries and and invoke them to not do it here in California, but at the the UN climate talks last year in Bonn, the 47 least developed countries said to the developed world, we need you to take urgent action to stay below 1.5 degrees, including no new fossil fuels and a managed phase out of fossil fuel production. That's what we need. So to invoke poor countries when they have spoken for themselves uh, pleading. they <laughs> the, the most climate vulnerable countries have been pleading for decades for urgent action and we are out of time. We have heard the same arguments you're making since the 90s and before then. Nobody's saying we don't need action on demand side, but we need urgent, on a wartime footing action to get this done. And you have argued against doing anything on California's uh, own dirty oil production. I couldn't disagree more vehemently with that. Three quarters of the oil produced here is more climate damaging than what comes from the tar sands of Alberta, Canada. There is no place better suited in the world than california to lead the way on what we know we need at the most fundamental level we need to leave fossil fuels in the ground and for decades we've heard let's do more r d and let's work on demand and only working on the on the demand side only working at the tailpipes and the smokestacks we've done that for decades and yes we need to accelerate that but if we only work on that that is the loophole to avoid actually getting there in order to get there we know what we need to do we have a carbon budget we need to leave these fossil fuels in the ground it's necessary and it's inevitable or we go above 1.5 degrees and the choice is stark between 1.5 and 2 degrees the uh, ipcc the body the scientific body that advises the world on climate change has just released this report with this stark change between 1.5 and 2 degrees that's a different between complete disappearance of the coral reefs and a chance of maybe saving 30% of those coral reef ecosystems, and on and on, it's stark. I mean, everything that we care about is at stake here, and, and we have to do more.
4: Severin Borenstein. Well, I, I completely agree that everything's at stake, and we have to do more. I think we see differently what's actually going to be effective. Um, uh, first of all, The developing world is producing more greenhouse gases than the developed world. Now we are by far more responsible for the greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. But the path is that the developing world is actually growing faster. They have said they need everyone to reduce greenhouse gases. But China and India are still on paths of building more coal fired power plants. Uh, And they're doing that because they're poor. And they want to grow. And China people live on uh, per capita GDP that's less than 15% of ours, and India's is half of that. You, so they are. So they. So they. They are. They want to grow economically. They are not going to get off of coal unless they have a technology to replace it. I agree with you that we need to take less fossil fuels out of the ground. But I think going out to the world and saying we need to immediately stop producing fossil fuels just will get us nowhere. I think everybody will simply ignore us. And I think the way that we actually will get somewhere and the way that we have gotten somewhere so far to the extent we've made any progress is by innovating. And so I am not I I want a big price on carbon in California. Uh, I think that but I think that the real change is going to come from innovation. Uh, I don't think we're going to get real change by saying we need to stop producing fossil fuels in California And then the last bit of it which you made reference to is I've I have spoken out against the keep it in the ground movement for a different reason Which is that if you look at how much wealth will be transferred to Saudi Arabia, Iran, Russia the major oil producers who are bad actors on the world scene by reducing California production For every ton of carbon we take out of the atmosphere, it will transfer $500 from consumers to those producing countries. I don't think making those producing countries richer is the pathway to a good world. Climate change is a major threat, but it is not the only major threat. And I think the poor countries in the world and the countries that really have shaky democracies would not appreciate strengthening Saudi Arabia, which we now you if you've been following, you've known for a long time. It's not a uh, real civil uh, 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 advanced country and Russia, which is now run by an autocrat who is trying to basically expand power. I think that matters, too. Bethany McLean, let's get you in here. I mean,
1: you covered you financially cover the markets. It's price is king, right? I mean, that's what really matters. Let's get you on this on whether people will do things for any motivation other than dollars.
3: I think at the end of the day, it's dollars that will that will decide this. And maybe I'm a little too cynical from decades of covering the markets, but that is part of the reason that I focused on the financial underpinning of this because I thought if the capital stops going into this industry, that's what's going to change things. If investors are unwilling to put money into it anymore, that's where that's where change is for sure going to come about, not in any other way because people suddenly decide they're going to do the right thing. Um, and I thought your point about the dollars going to Saudi Arabia um, when we come production here is, is really interesting because we're now seeing it play out in real time how reluctant countries around the world are to disentangle themselves from Saudi Arabia because of the huge pot of money the country has to invest. And when you think about the dollars, the Saudi Arabian dollars that are very active in supporting Silicon Valley right now, there's more than one way in which problematic things happen in the world.
1: So you're talking about the Khashoggi, you know, killing, uh, parent killing, uh, in, in Turkey, and that's how how that's brought the geopolitics of Saudi Arabia to the fore. Yes. This idea of uh, American independence or American dominance. You're saying that this shows it's not there yet because of the way people are tipped still showing deference to Saudi Arabia.
3: So when I started the book, I thought it was this interesting conundrum between this idea of American energy independence, which fracking was helping us achieve, and the financial instability of, of the industry. And when things don't add up, I'm always I'm always interested. But I came to believe over the course of working on the book that this whole idea of American energy independence was itself something of a fraud. And it's something every president going back to the 1970s has been talking about, American energy independence. But you stop to think about what it actually means in today's world. And it turns out those words don't actually mean anything, because the price of a barrel of oil is set by global markets. So it's set by events around the world, no matter how much oil we're producing here. And because business in America depends on imports from other countries who themselves are reliant on Middle Eastern oil, um, it's not as if we can look at Saudi Arabia and the Middle East and say, oh, we're producing all our own oil. We don't need you guys anymore. And you can see that with the current headlines about the horrible murder of Jamal Khashoggi, that nobody is saying, oh, American energy independence, we don't have to care about the Middle East. Quite the contrary. It's really highlighted all the, all the ties that exist between America and, and, and the Middle East. So when people talk about drilling because it's going to grant us this mythical notion of American energy independence, it's kind of a fraud.
1: We're talking about Saudi America, Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. Our guests are Bethany McLean, writer for Vanity Fair and author of the new book, Saudi America, The Truth About Fracking and How It's Changing the World, Kathy Siegel, Senior Counsel at the Center for Biological Diversity, and Severin Borenstein, Professor of Business at the University of California, Berkeley. I have some true and false and association questions for our guests, beginning first with Bethany McLean. True or false, Aubrey McClendon retired on April Fool's Day. (laughs) True. (laughs) True. Cassie Siegel, uh, true or false, yes or no, you wish Saudi Arabia was successful in its efforts to kill the businesses of American frackers.
2: It would have been good for the climate if only we had been so lucky. But, uh, the, but the markets are not going to do it. We need the government to do it.
1: Severin Borenstein, uh, true or false, oil companies donate research funds to universities to win friends and influence people. True. True. <laughs> <laughs> Bethany McLean true or false fracking has proven more resilient than anyone dreamed true Uh, Association I'm going to mention a person place or thing and you mentioned to me the first thing that comes to your mind completely recklessly unfiltered (laughs) Bethany McLean uh, George Mitchell
3: I think the father of fracking,
1: one of the first billionaires from fracking. Um, Cassie Siegel, the Environmental Defense Fund's collaboration with energy companies to measure the extent of methane leakage.
2: If methane leakage is as high as about three percent, actually a little less. Burning gas is worse than coal Worse
1: than coal. Uh, Severn Borenstein,
2: President Obama's legacy on energy.
1: Mixed. Bethany McLean, energy dominance. A myth. Cassie Siegel, India's new taxis powered by natural
2: gas. (sighs) (laughs) (laughs) Kyoto. The Clinton administration went to Kyoto and pushed a bunch of market mechanisms for addressing climate change on the rest of the world. And they didn't want them. And they said, take this, because it's the only way we can do it. And we were supposed to fund, clean development in China and India. And we reneged. The United States reneged on that in 1997. That's why that kind of stuff is happening.
1: Severin Borenstein, last one. Uh, what comes to mind when you hear U.S. Secretary of Energy Rick Perry? Oh.
4: <laughs> <laughs> that was the answer. <laughs> <laughs> All
1: right, let's, let's give them a round of applause again for the <laughs> gauntlet of... Um, <laughs>
0: You're listening to a conversation about the new fossil fuel economy. This is Climate One. Coming up, Greg Dalton asks more about making the transition from brown to green energy.
4: If we actually manage to reduce world oil demand by 20%, and we're gonna have to reduce it a lot more than that, the price of oil is gonna crash. And oil is gonna be $20 or $30 a barrel, which means gasoline is gonna be a dollar a gallon. That's the thing that keeps me up at night.
0: That's up next, when Climate One continues. You're listening to Climate One. Greg Dalton is talking about the future of fossil fuels with Severin Borenstein, professor at the Haas School of Business at UC Berkeley. Bethany McLean, author of the new book, Saudi America, the truth about fracking and how it's changing the world. And Cassie Siegel, senior counsel at the Center for Biological Diversity.
1: Here's Greg. Cassie Siegel, I've interviewed uh, people involved in energy supply who will say things like uh, they're starting to be recycled water in fracking. There's starting to be better measurement, better met tracking. Do you believe that? And they will say fracking is getting incrementally better, more environmentally responsible, not across the board, but in some cases fracking can be done cleaner. And so it protects the health of people around. Is that true?
2: Well, I doubt it. Um, but I mean, fundamentally from a climate Perspective, we can't do it. it. It's bad for lots of other reasons. I mean, if you you do not want the hydrofrackers moving in next to you, I mean, fracking is inherently dangerous, and it um, totally supercharges the harms to our air and our water and our environment when you frac. Um, but and you know, people suffer terribly when they're living next to an oil and gas well, not, not just from the fracking, but from all phases of production and the air pollution. Um, it makes people really sick. I mean, in California, we have the largest urban oil field. We have tremendous amounts of um, of neighborhood drilling, and, you know, kids have nosebleeds, they're nauseous, there's long-term health effects, so, um, you know, we need to do what we can during the transition, but fundamentally, we just have to stop digging this stuff up and burning it.
1: Bethy McLean, I want to ask you about a character in your book, Ali Al Naimi, who started working at 12 years old at Saudi Aramco. Tell us about him and how that relates to the bigger so thing. So
3: he was the oil minister during this pivotal time in Saudi Arabia where in the run-up to where, where oil prices started to fall in 2014, he made the call, um, is largely regarded as making the call to not cut um, Saudi Arabian production and to let the price continue to plummet. And it eventually plummeted all the way down to $26 a share. And the question is then why the Saudis reversed course and cut production. And one person I talked to speculated that lower oil prices... can wreak havoc on the environment, obviously, because they encourage us to use more. But they also wreak havoc on vulnerable places around around the world that depend on oil exports in order to um, in order to keep their economies running. And that Saudi Arabia basically didn't want to be responsible for for breaking the world, as this person put it to me. And it is a question if we transition away from oil, what happens to all of these economies? Because there's this interesting concept known as the fiscal break-even. So the question isn't as simple as what does it cost for us to get oil out of the ground. But a lot of societies, Saudi Arabia most prominently, have built up enormous public spending works um, that are based on a high price of oil. I think the estimate for Saudi Arabia is that they need an oil price of 85 to $90 a barrel to support their society as it runs currently. So with low oil prices or the end of the oil era, it also unleashes an enormous amount of geopolitical uncertainty.
1: And you write about MBS, the ascendant prince who's been very much on the news recently, and his Saudi Vision 2030. Um, do you think there serious about diversifying you know the headquarters of saudi aramco has now a huge solar installation but they pulled apparently there's some debate about this the public listing of saudi aramco which was going to be the biggest stock offering ever in history
3: well they are serious about it because I think MBS does see the problems with the country's reliance on oil and the country's budgetary woes over the past years with low oil prices have brought that home hard. Whether they can do it um, is an entirely different question, even if MBS remained disciplined and controlled his own worst impulses, um, which seems increasingly problematic. Um, They needed to pull off the uh, IPO of Saudi Aramco, which MBS has said was supposed to raise $2 trillion, and people who have looked at it are very skeptical that the numbers are anywhere near that big, Um, both because Aramco has been used as a piggy bank for the royal family for for so many years, and because if investors are starting to think about this transition to a world driven by renewables, who's going to put that quantity of money to work in an old-school oil country? So I think close watchers of Saudi Arabia basically say anything could happen there, and that's not really good for all of us.
1: You also right that U.S. uh, supply, U.S. being uh, a petro- uh, a petroleum exporter, which is a very new thing, it used to be illegal just a few years ago, is a, is a supply stick in U.S. Geo, in geopolitics. Tell us how that
3: well, I think oil is less so than natural gas in, okay. in some ways. So the big speculation or be- belief or hope is that if we export natural gas, we can change some of the geopolitical issues in, in Europe because Europe has for a long, a long time been very dependent on Russia for its natural gas. And so the idea of, is if America can export LNG to Europe, then Europe can free itself from its reliance on Russian natural gas, and that can have some very good impacts. Um, again, apart from the environment, but some good impacts on Putin's ability to wield power in the world. But I've encountered some real skepticism about how viable that is. It was funny; I was in Houston a couple of weeks ago, and a couple of people came up to me and said, "The infrastructure in Europe is a long way away from making this a reality." So it's much more of a theoretical concept now than it is than it is an actual reality. And as we with oil, the ability to export. If we're an exporter of oil, it, that cuts both ways, right? And we threaten China with tariffs. They can threaten us with tariffs.
1: Right. U.S. exports, you write $10 billion of petroleum to China, something, again, unthinkable a few years ago. We're talking about Saudi America with Severin Borenstein, Bethany McLean, and Cassie Siegel. Let's go to our audience question. Welcome.
3: Thank you. My name is Lila Holzman. I work in shareholder engagement at As You So. Many of the oil and gas companies we work with Acknowledge to varying degrees that a shift to a low-carbon energy sector is underway. Many are investing heavily in petrochemical buildup, noting that one of the byproducts of fracking is ethane and things like that that are then used in the petrochemical plastic industry, and that plastics will sort of take the place of energy demand going down as we shift to renewables. Any comments on that? And if that's as financially sound a decision as these companies are making
2: it out to be, and maybe a next book idea.
5: Thank you.
1: So, using oil for plastics rather than smoking it in our cars—who'd like to?
2: Yeah. So that is such an excellent point. This is the uh, oil and gas industry's plan, and uh, there are literally hundreds of petrochemical plants somewhere in the approval process were already drowning in plastic and their plan is to push a vast, vast amount um, of more plastic products on the world to continue um, to be able to produce this stuff even as the world um, transitions to renewable energy. So Uh, bad
1: for the traditional environment Good for the climate because it's not getting burned, but it's bad for ocean pollution, et
2: cetera. It's completely horrifying on every level and (laughs) separate and apart from whether it's financially viable. We just shouldn't allow it. That's why we have government. It just shouldn't happen. We don't need any more plastic.
1: That's Yeah,
4: <laughs> I, I I would just say I also think it's a head fake. I think, yeah, it's a small hedge and they are going to get moved more into petrochemicals. But if you get inside an oil company or even look at their public plans, they are not planning to substantially reduce production of transportation fuels and energy and electricity generation anytime time in many decades, and we're going to be far past uh, two, two degrees C by then. So we're not going to get this solution from the oil companies. We're going to have to get it somewhere else.
1: Next question. Welcome to Climate One.
4: Hi. There's been a lot of speculation and debate around when um, the world economy will reach uh, peak demand for crude oil. I was wondering if the panelists would like to um, choose a year or or make uh, come out with some sort of prediction about what year that that might be.
1: Peak demand. We heard a lot about peak supply ten years ago, Bethany McLean.
3: So one of the humbling things for me in working on this book was realizing that anybody who has ever attempted to predict anything about the future of energy has usually been dead wrong. <laughs> um, so I'm going to heed my own warning and be careful about that. What I will say is that there are a lot of uh, people who are actively trying to figure that out, and I think it's not algebra. I think it's really multivariable calculus, depending on on so many things. And so no one no one has the answer, but it's something that people are actively trying to figure out. And I think the only <laughs> the smartest thing in light of this history <laughs> is to say i don't know but it's the right question
4: actually i i will i'm going to argue it's not quite the right question Mm -hmm. um peak demand may occur fairly soon in the sense of 5 10 or 15 years from now the problem is that while the there's the last little bit of oil right now is coming from 50 or 60 dollar barrel sources there's this vast pool of 5 10 and 20 dollar barrel sources if we actually plan manage to reduce world oil demand by 20 percent and we're going to have to reduce it a lot more than that, the price of oil is going to crash and oil is going to be $20 or $30 a barrel, which means gasoline is going to be a dollar a gallon. Uh, that's the thing that keeps me up at night. I think we're going to actually manage to electrify the or to, to move to 100 percent renewables in the electric system. But transportation right now, particularly with how cheap how much really cheap oil there is. It may be possible to get past a peak, but to get far, past, to really drive down uh, consumption way below 80%
5: is gonna require uh, massive innovation.
1: Next question, welcome.
5: Uh, hi, my name is Jan Grigier, and um, my question is mostly for Kathy. Um, it's another take on the, on the keep it in the ground movement. Um, and I read uh, somewhere recently that um, in Australia, even though the Great Barrier Reef is being pretty much decimated by um, bleaching and so on, it hasn't affected the tourist uh, trade there. Um, indeed, not really at all. Um, and so I worry that if we set up a target of, okay, we've only got so many gigatons left, that there will be this basically, oh, well, we better use it or lose it. Uh, in the same way that tourists are flocking to the Great Barrier Reef before they and other people manage to destroy it, and the same way that I went to see some aging walkers down in the desert a few years ago before they croaked, so is there a, a, a possibility that keeping it in the ground would, in fact, accelerate basically um, the taking it out of the ground as countries compete to take it out before they have to stop?
2: Yeah, you know, I I think that's a fair question, but I think that we're already seeing aspects of this. I mean. I remember having a conversation in 2007 um, with a friend about the death throes of the coal industry <laughs> and we thought it was coming a lot sooner than it came but um, you know, the, the fossil fuel producers see this and they're fighting as hard as they can against it. The Koch brothers are fighting as hard as they can against it. I mean, you know, we're, not, we're not having a policy debate in this country about what's the economically optimal way to do this. We're having a war with the Koch brothers and the oil companies um, you know, about fossil fuels and also about the survival of our democratic institutions. So, um, so I, you know, I, I think you're making a fair point, but the bottom line is, you know, the physical reality of our climate system is that we have to leave these fossil fuels in the ground. At one degree, global warming fueled superstorms are wiping out entire cities at one degree. So the physical reality is if we wanna have a planet that we recognize, we have to figure out a way to keep these fossil fuels in the ground.
1: And I saw a chilling statistic recently about 1.5 degrees possibly being only 12 years away. Think about that. Next question. Welcome to Climate One.
4: Hi, I'm Lola Flanagan. I'm currently a senior in high school at Sonoma Academy. Um, obviously, there are a lot of externalities on a Uh, international relations
5: level, climate level, economic level, due to changes in the oil market. um, What do you think, as an economist, is the most realistic step forward in
4: terms of the global financial sphere to mitigate those externalities?
1: Before you answer that, I just want to say, wait a minute. And you know what externalities are. And you came from Sonoma. He taught me. I mean, let's just... Give it right there. Okay, I'm impressed. She's sorry. She, she, next time you're up here, exactly. but okay.
4: <laughs> and now I'm going to duck your question because <laughs> you asked an economist about basically a geopolitical solution. Um, and I think ultimately uh, it's very hard to get a geopolitical agreement, particularly because the very largest oil producers in the world outside the United States are ones that really have very poor world global citizenship records. And so getting them to stop producing or to actually participate usefully, um, I think, is even less likely than getting U.S. oil companies to participate usefully. So uh, I I wish I were more optimistic about the sort of getting that sort of participation. I have worked in this area for decades. longer than you've been alive. Uh, And uh, I and that has really brought me around to the view that we need to be pushing on the technology side because we're not going to get I I shouldn't say that I I just am not optimistic. We're going to get a global agreement. But technology can just push these things through uh, when they really are more cost effective. And, you know, the world has thrived on a market economy. And yes, it's a regulated market economy, but the tighter that regulation squeezes somebody, particularly if it's a rich somebody, the more they fight back. The Koch brothers are telling, saying things that are just not true. They're smart guys. I'm sure they know it's not true. They're saying it because they make a lot of money at it. And so I think the way we're going to have to break through that is with the technology that figures out how to run a grid on 100% renewables, figures out how to store electricity, figures out how to have automobiles that don't need to run on gasoline.
0: Greg Dalton has been talking about the future of fossil fuels with Severin Borenstein, professor at the Haas School of Business at UC Berkeley, Bethany McLean, a writer for Vanity Fair and author of the new book, Saudi America, the truth about fracking and how it's changing the world. And Cassie Siegel, Senior Counsel at the Center for Biological Diversity. To hear all our Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast at our website, climateone.org. you will also find photos, video clips, and more. If you like the program, please let us know by writing a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And join us next time for another conversation about energy, economy,
1: and the environment. Climate One is a special project of the Commonwealth Club of California. Kelly Pennington and Sarah Catherine Coxon run our audience engagement. Tyler Reed is our producer. The audio engineers are Mark Kirshner and Justin Norton. Annie Chelsea and Devin Strolovich edit the show. I'm Greg Dalton, the executive producer and host. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Climate One is produced in association with KQED Public Radio.